some of our Imago Day people here. We just started the church about 18 months ago. Uh, we meet at East Millbrook Middle School, and it's going really well. And uh, if you don't have a church, we'd love to see you. And I also need to give a brief plug to our 2020 conference. I also teach at uh, Southeastern. And we're going to have a really good lineup of uh, speakers and breakout sessions about the Bible. The theme is the scriptures come to life. And we're going to have uh, Tullian Chavijan, who is uh, really a, a phenomenal uh, preacher of the gospel. He's probably the best looking pastor you'll ever see also, says a side note. Um, and uh, D.A. Carson, who is an absolute theological stud, who's written over 50 books, uh, has a wonderful French-Canadian accent. And then there's Dr. Aiken and, and me. Uh, and, and I'm there basically to bring some athletic balance to the lineup. <laughs> Most people that I meet on the street don't believe I'm a professor or a pastor. Uh, you know, I was on an airplane recently, and a, and a guy was talking to me the whole time, and then he said those in, that inevitable question, so what do you do? And I'm like, well, why don't you guess what I do? He said, well, I'm going to guess that you own a tattoo parlor. <laughs> and, and, I was so flattered by that. I was like, it's one of the greatest compliments I've ever received. He actually said, you look like a Jewish tattoo owner in Manhattan, which is funny because most of the Jewish people don't get tattoos. Um, and, and so I was like, man, that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. I said, no, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not a tattoo guy. He said, well, I, I would guess that maybe you own a Harley shop. And I was like, no, I don't own a Harley shop either. Uh, I'm actually a pastor. And he was like, you're a pastor? I was like, yeah, uh, I'm actually a pastor. And he was blown away by that. I've been called Chris Daughtry and Vin Diesel. Um, uh, recently in an airport, guy grabbed my arm in Memphis, and he was like, hey, man, are you the lead singer for Anthrax? And I said, no, I'm a pastor. And, <laughs> and then the, two weeks ago at the airport, a guy said, are you the guy from Kill Switch Engage? And I was like, who is that? And, 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 and so that was a new one. So anyway, it's all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan. Um, uh, tonight, I want to talk to you about loving one another from 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 to 18. Really great to, to be with you guys. I'll try to be brief, but I, I do want to look at the Bible tonight. I hope it's okay to, to teach the Bible at, at crew. Um, we're in a Baptist church, and this is actually where my wife used to go to church when she was a student uh, here in, in Raleigh back in 03. I've never been here before. It's for my first time. Um, but I want to talk about loving one another. And when, I, when, we, when we look at this passage in chapter 3, verses 11 to 18... Uh, first John, it makes me think of another John, the great theologian Johnny Cash. How many of you are Johnny Cash fans? Can I see? Yes, I'm among friends tonight. If you're not, we pray for you. I think you, you, you might be able to be a Christian and not a Johnny Cash fan. I don't know yet. I'm going to leave that one to, to the Lord uh, to discern. But, but Johnny Cash, I like him for several reasons. One, he just had some swag to begin with. Um, he, he wore black a lot, which is my favorite color. And most of all, I love Johnny Cash because Johnny Cash uh, is the one guy I can do at karaoke performances because he can't sing either. And so it's really great to, to be able to get really low and sing with the Cash Man. Uh, my wife's a beautiful voice. She could do like Celine Dion and all these people. But when, we, when I do karaoke, I have to choose Johnny Cash or a guy you might not have heard of, Right Said Fred who back in the 80s sang a song called I'm Too Sexy for My Shirt. And he, he, and, and he couldn't sing either. So those are the two options I have when, when I do karaoke. I have Johnny Cash or Right Said Fred. But one of the things that Johnny Cash said about his music is that you could put all of his music in one of three categories. It was about love, God, or murder. Love, God, or murder. And in fact, his new compilation CD has a picture of a heart, a cross, and a gun. 
That's his whole, all of his music. It's a heart cross or a gun. And that's exactly what we're talking about here tonight. 1 John 3, 11 to 18. Love God and murder. What does it mean to love? What does it mean to love in a cross-centered way? What does it mean to know the love of Jesus that has come to us via the cross? What does it mean to love by the power of this cross? And, and how do we not shoot people? Instead of, and how, how can we love people? You'll see here all of that mentioned as I read in 1 John 3, 11, going down to verse 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Who does not love abides in death. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. For if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. This is God's word. Now, let me give you a bit of a big picture of, of John's letter here. First John is a book that's written to give you assurance that you belong to God. John is one of the Bible writers that actually gives us a purpose statement for his letter. We really appreciate that about John. There's a lot of parts of the Bible that's quite confusing. But first John says, here's, here's what I'm writing about. Chapter 5, verse 13. Purpose statement. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now think about all the things you can know tonight. What could be more important than to know you have eternal life? And John uses this word know 40 times in the letter. And he tells you you can know that you belong to God by examining your life with four tests. This is how you know. First test is a truth test. There are certain things we must believe about Jesus. For example, he says in chapter 4, in verse 2, By this we know, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And we believe as Christians there are certain things that you must affirm uh, about the gospel, that you must affirm about Jesus. And one of them, of course, is that he came in the flesh. There, there's a lot of, of folks today who don't think that's important. They basically will say, you just need to believe in the idea of Jesus or the idea of the resurrection. But actually believing that Jesus came in the flesh is really irrelevant. Not to the Bible writers. It is super important that we believe that Jesus Christ came, lived the life we could not live, died the death we should have died. And today there is an empty tomb in the Middle East that tells us that he's alive and on the throne tonight. There are particular truths about Jesus that are critical that we must affirm. The second test that John gives us, beyond the truth test, is a test that you might call a righteousness test. He basically says those who belong to God, who know God, they are practicing righteousness. It doesn't mean they are perfect. None in this room are perfect. It means that we are progressively being more and more like Jesus. That we have a desire for righteousness. We have, as Jesus called it, a hunger for righteousness. A thirst for righteousness. So John tells us that the person who knows God, like in chapter 2, they keep his commandments. And so we, we love God's word. We love his commandments. We repent over our sin when we don't practice righteousness. So there's a truth test, a righteousness test. And then there's a test that we just read here, well, you might call a relational test. That real Christians love people. Real Christians love specifically one another. And that's what the passage says that we just read here. That those who have passed from death to life 
love one another. John uses it over and over and over in his letter. Now the fourth test is what I would just call a spiritual test or an experiential test. Christianity is not just about the head. Christianity is also about an experience. And so he says in chapter uh, 3, verse 24, whoever keeps his commands abides in God and God abides in him. And watch this now. And we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. It's very similar to what Paul says in Romans 8 9 when he says, Whoever does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. So those are four tests. Now, I, I share those with you to give you a bit of a backdrop about this letter. Now, this is really important because we live in a day of theological confusion where nobody wants to, to make a claim about truth. And it's very similar to the day in which John is writing. John is writing in a day in which people did not believe in absolutes. People believed in a, a sort of a spirituality that was very vague and mystical and esoteric. But John is a writer that provides a distinction. So in this letter, he says, there is light and dark. There are children of the devil, children of the father. Right? There, 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 there is truth and there are lies. There is love and there is hate. There is life and there is death. He's writing in black and white, giving us distinction. And he says, these are ways you know you belong to God. Now, what I'd like for us to do is just work on one of those tests tonight, and that's this relational test. How are you doing at loving one another? How are you doing at loving one another? This is very important for us for many reasons. Think about some of the reasons, other than the fact that Valentine's Day is coming up, um, which doesn't mean much to some of you guys, right? Uh, I practiced single awareness day for 27 years myself. But uh, we all in this room are made for relationships. Therefore, we need to learn how to love. You are made, all of us, in the image and likeness of God. And God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And He has existed forever in perfect fellowship with Himself. God is a relationship. And you are made in the likeness of God. You're made for community. You're made for people. You're made to know and love people, to be loved by people. And, and your self, your true self, is brought out through people, through relationships. No one is made to be a hermit and to live in isolation. It was not good for man to be alone. I love the story C.S. Lewis tells when his friend Charles died. He says, you know, when my friend Charles died, I thought, well, this is really sad and it was, it was an awful time. But when Charles died, I thought, you know what, that means I could spend more time with Ronald. I'll, have more, I'll get to know Ronald more. That was Tolkien. He called him Ronald. And what he discovered is he actually lost part of Ronald when Charles died. Because there were only parts of Ronald that Charles could bring out. And so he never saw that side of Ronald anymore. All of us are made to be in a community. We're made to know God in a community. And so we need to, to learn what it means to love. And in this community, all of us will face conflicts. How many of you have at least one relational conflict in your life? Okay. Very good. How many of you are sitting next to your conflict? Anybody? Thank you. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? I love college students. You just ask them a rhetorical question and they go crazy. It's not like church. This is wonderful. Uh, getting some feedback. I don't like it. I might go for a while. Uh, so we have conflict. So how do you get along in this conflict? And let's face it. In, a con in, in relationships, there will be times in which you disagree. You disagree. You'll disagree in Campus Crusade. You'll disagree in your classes. You'll disagree in your church. You'll disagree in a marriage. So how do you, how do you when you disagree, not shoot each other? I, how, when you are disagreeing, do you not just hate each other forever? You need to learn the spirit of charitableness and, and how to disagree agreeably, okay? 
And, and John helps us in this. Helps us learn what it means to love. When we say we're loving each other, it doesn't mean that we're always going to agree. But it does mean that we agree to love each other. Okay? Number four, uh, another reason this is important is our culture has a warped view of love. When, when we talk about love in our world, what on earth does that mean anyway? It's just, we're all over the map with the definition of love. Another huge reason why love is important is because John says in John 13, actually with Jesus' words, that people will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. One of the ways people will become a Christian is by observing real Christian love. And they'll say, whatever that is, I want it. In fact, you know, the great apologetic uh, Francis Schaeffer apologist said that he called this the final apologetic, meaning that true Christian love is the most winsome thing you can do for an unbelieving person. Now, Schaeffer could answer so many theological and philosophical questions. And in our day, in which it's so important that we learn to contend for the faith, to go up against the Bart Ehrmans who want to punch holes in everything, and the Dan Dennett's and Christopher Hitchens and all of the guys who, who, who we need to learn how to, how to respond in these situations. But there's more than just giving answers. There is a sense of love. It's so important that you realize that Christianity is not just about theology, as important as that is. There is also a sense of love that must be displayed by Christians that makes the faith believable it, and it makes the faith observable. And so this is exactly what Jesus said. So it's really important that we, we learn these concepts. So we don't want to be just people with, with a big head and a little heart. We want to be people with heads and with hearts and with hands. So let me ask you some questions. Do you have real community in your life? Do you have real friends in your life, Christian friends, who can contradict you? Who can speak to your life, you can speak into their life, you encourage them, they encourage you, you rebuke them, they can rebuke you, and you love each other. Do you learn in community? You learn in community. Do you, do you love the church as a college student? I know you might want to be away from a church for a season. But do you, do you love the idea of a church or do you actually love a real person in a church? Have people in a church come over to your house, sit on your couch or your dorm, open your fridge? Have you been to their house, open their fridge? Have you got involved in their life? You need a church. You're made for this community. God has met our need for community and family and in church in the relationships within the body of Christ. Would people classify you, if you're a leader at all in the Christian faith, as a religious bully or a humble, loving servant leader? Students, do you love your professors? Do they see a, a, a unique sense of love in the way you, you talk to them and respect them? Are you envious of others when they are promoted or elevated? Or do you love them and encourage them? When you write a blog, is there a sense of charitableness? Are you measured in your speech? That's why 1 John is so important to us. John goes on here, and I want you to just notice three questions that, that I think are important for us to answer as we look at these verses. The first question is this. Do you see how important love is? This particular brotherly love that John's talking about, do you see how important it is? He says in verse 11, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that you love one another. What he's saying here is, I've got nothing new. This is the message you heard from the beginning. He's referring to uh, the time in which the, the readers heard the gospel, which would have included the teaching of Jesus. Some ten times John uses in this book 
the phrase from the beginning. He's, he's taking us back to Jesus' own teaching in which Jesus taught us to love one another. So John is saying, hey, I've got nothing new here. I just keep reminding you of the gospel over and over and over. I do keep telling you the things of our Lord that he has instructed us. He, he draw, he's drawing back upon the Last Supper discourse between John 13 and 17, talking to us over and over about these things. And so basically John steals his sermon from Jesus. If you're going to steal one, that's a good place to get it. And he's just, he's just repeating it. Now, where did Jesus talk about loving one another? Well, I just told you, John 13. And in this passage, if you have a Bible, you might look at it for just a second. Jesus says to his disciples, A new commandment I have given you, that you love one another as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. A new commandment I give to you, he says. And by this, all people will know you're my disciples. This is where Francis Schaeffer got the idea. Uh, by this, all people will know you're my disciples in your love for one another. Now, Jesus says this is a new commandment. Now, what is new about this commandment? Were we not already taught in the Old Testament about love? We were. But what makes the new commandment new is the fact that Jesus says here, as I have loved you. What's new about the new commandment is that Jesus has modeled it for us. Jesus has actually not just taught us about love, but he has demonstrated love. He has demonstrated his love, and so God has come in a person and shown us love. Further, he not only demonstrates it, but he empowers it. It's a new commandment in that now Jesus will die, rise, send the Spirit, and give us power to live out this command to love one another. And when that happens, we experience what 1 John says, His commandments are not burdensome to us. They're a joy to us. So Jesus has given us this command that you should, you should love one another. This is, a, this is a new commandment in a sense in which it's been exemplified by Jesus, empowered by Jesus. It's a very simple commandment. This is what D.A. Carson says about the commandment. He says, the new commandment is simple enough for a toddler to memorize. So you can teach your kids this commandment to love one another. It's easy enough for them to memorize it and appreciate it. Profound enough, though, that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. We're repeatedly embarrassed at how we comprehend it and put it into practice. Now, Jesus didn't say this just one time. If you're still in John uh, 13, go to John 15 and look in verse 12. Same discourse, same disciples. Notice how Jesus keeps emphasizing this. Chapter 15, verse 12. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Notice here how Jesus says, this is my commandment. My commandment. So this commandment is just as important as the commandments God wrote with his finger. Jesus says, of all the commandments, there are over 1,400 commands just in the New Testament. This is my commandment. It's pretty important, isn't it? And he says it again down in chapter 15, verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And by the time you get to the end, you're like, I, I think we heard you the first time. This is over and over and over. What's your commandment? That you love one another. How? Just as I've shown you. How? By my power. So let me ask you some questions. How seriously do you take the command of Jesus Christ tonight to love one another? Do you take this commandment as seriously as you do the commandment, do not commit adultery? Most of what you hear today in Christian circles, all this talk about uh, adultery and pornography and all of those things are really important. They have their place. But do you love one another? 
Do you love people? Are you taking it seriously? This is Jesus, hours before his death, giving us instruction. This is my commandment, guys. Do you think you can habitually break the commandment, love one another? Is this issue on your mind when you gather for worship on a Sunday? Or is church for you just a place to hear a little teaching, a little preaching, and exercise your religious freedom? Is it a place for that, or is it a place where you, you, you see brothers and sisters, and you see that in some sense you're responsible for their well-being, and you care for them? Is your conversation about unbelievers, or about believers, indicative of keeping this commandment? So, Jesus has modeled it. How did he model it? In John 13, what did Jesus do? He washed feet. He washed feet. This is amazing, isn't it? This is not raw power. This is humble servanthood. And Jesus says, this commandment I give you, love one another just as I have loved you. Just as I've loved you earlier in the story, what did he do? He washed their feet. Now, how many of you in this room hate feet? Good, good, that's good. I hate feet. Uh, and most guys would admit, even with a shower and some baby powder and fast acting tenactin, that their feet stink. You know, the last thing we want to do is wash anybody's feet. The fact that your feet stink is evidence that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You were not made to have stinky feet. That's a product of the fall, okay? And Jesus here is washing feet. That's amazing. He washes Judas's feet. He knows Judas is about to betray him for 30 pieces of silver, and he washes his feet. How many of you would have washed Judas's feet or taken the basin and hit him in the head with? That's what I would have done. Or, or Peter. It's real quiet in John 13 until he gets to Peter. And then the whole room explodes because Peter has got such a big mouth. As soon as he takes his foot out of his mouth, he starts talking. And he puts it back in because he keeps saying things he shouldn't say. There's Jesus washing Peter's feet. This is an example from Jesus. What does it mean to love? What's it look like? Well, it looks like that. And so when, you, when it comes to love, we have a picture. It's in Jesus. John tells us, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. Love one another. You've heard it over and over. Now, he moves on in 1 John verse 12. And he says, this is what you shouldn't do. What you should do is look to Jesus. What you shouldn't do is look to Cain, just in case you don't know. He, Cain is not a very good example here. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, who, who were Cain and Abel? They were products of Adam and Eve. And the first murder in the Bible is a brother kills his other brother. Cain kills his brother Abel. And it says, why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. They both bring an offering to God. God accepts Abel's, he rejects Cain's. Cain gets jealous of his brother, and he kills him. Murder is as old as dirt, basically. It's been around forever. And he draws on this picture and says, you're not to be like Cain, wicked and jealous. Instead, you're to be like Abel. What was Abel? Well, his deeds were righteous. And it's interesting here that, that he gets killed because of his righteousness. So the passage teaches us what we must avoid, Cain, and what we must expect as people who love one another from the world we might receive hatred. Now this makes really no sense, doesn't it? If you're a Christian, people might hate you. And you say, well what did I do to them? Nothing. They just hate you. 
Welcome to the party. <laughs> it's like, but all we're doing is, is taking care of each other. I know. Now, where did John ever get such an idea that if you love people, outsiders might hate you? Well, he got that from Jesus. John rips the whole book off from Jesus. And it's okay. You can rip Jesus off. Uh, elsewhere, it's, it's plagiarism. But if you're going to copy somebody, copy Jesus. And so Jesus says in John 15, hey, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. Jesus, what did you ever do to anybody? Nothing. I loved them. I served them. I died for them. And they killed me. And then Jesus says, you're not above your master. If they did it to me, they're probably going to do it to you. Jesus is the true and better Abel. Jesus is the real Abel that was killed, though he was perfectly innocent. And Hebrews tells us that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. The blood of Abel cries out for vengeance. And the blood of Jesus cries out for forgiveness. His blood cries out tonight to anyone who will hear it and say yes to Jesus. Though you crucified me, I will save you. This is the picture that Jesus has given us. That even though you love one another, you can expect that some people will not like it. On the flip side, some people will be attracted to the gospel, as mentioned earlier in the sermon. One of the best ways that unbelievers find the gospel believable is by our love for one another. So in Acts chapter 2, the church is taking care of each other's needs, and outsiders are looking at that, and they're saying, that's incredible. What kind of community is this? I want that. Others might see it and may be turned off by this righteousness. They may despise it. And all John is telling us here is, look, don't be surprised if somebody hates you. Does that mean we're looking for enemies? Of course not. We're not looking for enemies. We have enough enemies. We, we are just not surprised. Some professions have certain consequences. A race car driver doesn't say, hey, I can't believe I got in a wreck. Well, dude, you're driving 210 miles an hour. You might get in a wreck. A baseball player doesn't say, hey, I got hit with the ball. I can't believe I'm quitting. It's baseball. It's baseball. And there's no crying in baseball. So, so you know, put your helmet back on and get in the game. Uh, 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 somebody in, an, in a war doesn't say, I can't believe they're shooting at me. It's a war. It's a war. And so a Christian should say, I can't believe nobody likes People don't like me. Well, what did you do to them? Nothing. I was just baking cookies and handing out muffins and just loving everybody and, and they don't like me. <laughs> it's going to happen. Jesus, Paul tells Timothy, he says, all who desire to live a godly life will be praised, right? No. Persecuted. So John tells us, don't be surprised. And then John says this really important word. He says that you should test your heart. He says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. That's awesome, isn't it? How do you know if you belong to God? You have a new capacity to love people. How many of you, before you were a Christian, had a terrible temper? And after you became a Christian, it wasn't gone. But it's less and less and less. You're actually becoming likable. Yes. That's me. I became a Christian in college. I went to college, played baseball. I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. Um, I had a scholarship to play baseball in Kentucky, and I played baseball there. I um, became a Christian through the witness of our second baseman on our team named Steven. Uh, became a Christian at FCA, but the first time I got, went to FCA, I got in a fight. 
I got in a lot of fights. I led the team in technical fouls in basketball, and it wasn't good. I one time threw a bat not against the fence on a call that was obviously a ball. They called it a strike. And I was so mad, I threw the bat out of the, out of the field into the bleachers. Um, I should have been arrested for, for such violent acts. Uh, so the idea that I would be a preacher is laughable to me. And people ask sometimes, well, what are you going to do in five years? I have no idea. It's just... And God took me uh, and, and called me to be a pastor. And my whole job description now is to, to take care of people and love people. And, and he tells a pastor, you can't be violent, you have to be gentle. I hate that commandment. Wouldn't it be great if a pastor, you could just beat people up. Say, you haven't given an offering in four weeks, dude. We're going outside, okay? We are about to throw down. Or somebody's complaining about the music. Fine, bring them in here. Let's get it on. You can't do that. You can't do it. You have to love people. It's hard. I know. I know. My wife and I adopted five kids over the last two and a half years. We went from zero to five. I'll talk about that at another sermon, maybe. But we have four kids from Ukraine and one from Ethiopia. They're grades one, two, three, four, and five. We've only been married eight years and we have a 12-year-old. That in itself is kind of funny. But, because I'm a pastor, not whatever. You get what I'm saying. Uh, I wake up, they are up this morning at 6.30. Like, why are you up at 6.30? And so I'm preaching on First John all day. I preached a sermon in chapel this morning at Southeastern. I get to talk about love, and there it is, staring me in the eye at 6.30 in the morning without any coffee. Am I going to practice my sermon or not? <laughs> so if you're in the room and you say, oh, I'm just struggling with loving this particular individual, I feel you, okay? I'm struggling loving a church. I know what, you know, whatever. But John says, test your heart. Because when you get a new heart, you get a new family. You get a new capacity to love. And he goes on to say, if you have hate in your heart, which is basically what he's talking about with murder here, an abiding state of hatred, do you really think God's love abides in you? Do you really think you could call yourself a believer when you have malicious hate? This doesn't mean that a murderer can't become a Christian. We know that, that they can, just take the Apostle Paul. But he's talking again about a habitual state of murder in someone's heart. So that's the first question. Do you see how important, I think we need an elevated concept of how important love is in Christianity. Okay? Now, second thing I want you to see is, I want you to notice how cross-centered love is. Notice how cross-centered it is. Verse 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a class where the prof says, hey, we want to give a definition of love. We're going to have a whiteboard session, and you just give me a definition of love, and we're going to write it down. And so this person gives this definition, this person gives this definition, and so on. John will not let us leave our definition of love just up for grabs. He doesn't let us make it just philosophical, unable to grab hold of. John says, by this, we know love. What is love, John? That he laid down his life for us. Now, our culture has such a skewed view of love, don't they? But the Bible brings us back. And if you ever tell the prophet, we know what love is, he probably won't listen to you, right? We're going to quote the Bible to the guy. 
do that, but we just, they're going to hate us. Um, but what is the love? It looks like a cross. It's Jesus. Do you see him there? He laid down his life for us. That means in place of us, on behalf of us, instead of us. He substituted himself in our place for our sins. He took what we deserve to give us what only he had. That's love. But when you talk to people today about love, here, here are at least four wrong ways to think about love. Some people think love is tolerance. Now, of course, we should tolerate people's views and that sort of thing in a, in a country like ours. I'm not talking about that type of tolerance. I'm talking about people think that you should never disagree or contradict them. And so often, truthfulness is exchanged for tolerance. Don't replace truthfulness with tolerance. Instead, the Bible calls us to speak the truth, how? In love. Again, a person is free to believe whatever they want to believe. But you are not necessarily loving them by avoiding the truth. Rather, speak truth in love. Another way a lot of people think about love in our culture is purely sexual. Eros love. So a guy takes you out for a date and you go watch Twilight. And you, you come home and, and you, you do the, the Cupid shuffle. And, and, that, and all of a sudden he says, I love you. That is the magic word now for sex. Dude, you just went to twilight and did the shuffle. You're moving too fast, okay? But that's, love means now sex. Or, some think about it, likewise, a very similar way, with a very diminished view. So we use love about everything, don't we? I love Starbucks. I love chicken. I love donuts. And so when a guy goes with a girl, say he takes you out, and he finally, he sits down and and you're looking at each other in the eye in that magical moment, and he says, I love you, you've only been out for one time, um, don't believe him. He loves you like a donut. He, he, just, he likes donuts, and he likes you. He, you know, it's, it's not love, it means nothing. It means nothing, it, it's just a hollow love. And his hot light is on, that's the only reason he's saying that. It's, it's, there, there is a motive behind that. It's only funny because there's truth to it, right? Listen, there are players in Christianity. There are players in churches. There are players at Campus Crusade, I'm sure. And you've got to watch these guys. And I would say, we tell them in Imago Day, you touch our girls, we'll break your neck. Okay? With love. <laughs> so, you get what I'm saying? Others have this view of love that's just a sentimental, sort of a Hallmark card love. You fall in in love, out of love, and so forth. No concept of a covenant love. But the Bible's clear. John won't let you leave love undefinable. Love is a cross. You want to know what love is? There it is. Now, I remember when I was reading the Bible as a new Christian, I came to 1 John, I was like, man, this guy, he's like a hippie. He's just talking about love all the time. He's just, all you need is love. And he's, I want to know what love is. We could go on, but we won't. And, but, but it's like, you don't understand, John. His thought of love is cross-centered, and so is the New Testament. So let me give you a few examples of what I'm talking about to put this down in reality, and then we'll move on here. When the Bible tells a husband to love their wife, Paul doesn't say, husbands, love your wives like a donut. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. 
Don't just love your wife because you need to, because you're nice, or because you feel like it. All New Testament ethics, all New Testament love is rooted in the cross. It's a reflection on the cross, back to the cross, through the cross. He says, for example, Paul does in Ephesians 4.32, Forgive one another. Why? Because God in Christ forgave you. Not because you feel like it or because it's a nice thing to do, but because Jesus did that for you. Or when it comes to adoption, why would you want to adopt kids? Because it's a picture of the gospel. It's what God has done for us. He has adopted us. So this is the view of love that a Christian should take. We take a cross-eyed view of the world. We take a cross-eyed view of the church. All of our relationships are to be lived in view of this cross. By this we know love. He laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our friends. So this is my definition of love. It is passion that leads to action. This is exactly what Jesus did. It was a passion that led to something. God demonstrated his love for us. While we were sinners, he died for us. Jesus was not just sentimental. Jesus didn't just define love. Jesus demonstrated love. It was a passion that led to something, you see? So don't think that sympathy is love. Sympathy is no substitute for action. Our sympathy for people in need does not help them. Only when we move to action, when the passion leads to action, does it help them. So tonight there are 27 million slaves who are sold into human trafficking. And it doesn't matter how sorry you feel for these girls who are being raped 22 times a day. Until we do something, we are not loving them. There are over 140 million orphans in the world today, and that's only those who have been orphaned by death, not sold or abandoned. And until we do something, we're not really loving them. There are about 2 billion people in the world today who never heard the gospel, and until we take the gospel to them, however sorry we feel about them is not helping them tonight. You see what I'm saying? John won't let us leave love philosophically. Love is rooted in reality. It's demonstrated. And that's why he goes on to say, if you love, lay down your life for somebody. We lay down our lives for our brothers. And I love this about John because John was not the most loving person in the New Testament. That should give you some hope tonight. John was a late bloomer. It took a long time for John to grow into the apostle of love. In the New Testament, his brother is James and their nickname is the Sons of Thunder. The Sons of Thunder. What a great nickname. When the Samaritans didn't believe in Jesus, James and John said, let's burn them all up. <laughs> yeah, these are the guys you would not trust with a lighter or with gasoline. They would just blow the whole place up. And, and now, John's writing about love over and over and over. What happened? He understood the cross. And the cross had so worked its way into John's life. And he had saw his Savior. I believe John the Apostle was Jesus' closest friend. And that forever changed him. So did Peter. Was Peter the most loving guy in the New Testament? They come for Jesus. What does Peter do? He takes out a sword and he cuts a guy's ear off. <laughs> Think about that. He's always packing. Just pulling out. Get some. He's, that's Peter. And so Peter, he writes, he writes First Peter and says, Love one another earnestly. Show hospitality without grumbling. That's Peter. That should give you hope. What is love? Love is passion with action. It's cross-centered. It does something. And you think about these guys tonight. We have hospitals named after Peter. 
John. These little smelly fishermen now turned apostles, writing the Bible. We have institutions known for love named after them. Universities, streets, cities. Was anything named after Nero or Caesar? Not really. Anything named after Nero, maybe a dog? Caesar, you get a salad, maybe. <laughs> you get a bad haircut, you get a pizza place. Uh, here's, here's James and John. Last thing, he says at the end of the section, if you see your brother in need and you close your heart to them and you don't meet that need, how does God's love abide in you? And he closes this little sermon. And I love how John says this. He's so pastoral. Because he's been just railing on us. And then he says, little children. Little children. Come in here real close. I've been, I've been yelling at you this whole book. Telling you all to love. Now, little children. Let us not love in word and talk. That's not love. But deed and truth. Go put some skin on your love. You notice how he says here. You see your brother in need. He shifts from the plural to the singular. You see your brother in need. You say you're loving people. Give me a name. Give me a face. Whom are you loving? That kid who needs tutored in the afternoon. A kid in your church, maybe. Some folks in a nursing home. Whatever it is. Somebody in this group right here, that's, you know, their parents are dying of cancer. Is there, is there someone that needs to have 1 John 3, 11 to 18 experienced? That type of love from you to them. And so this is, this is our word tonight. John tells us this is what we've heard from the beginning. This is a message from Christ. And our love is cross-centered and our love should be displayed. It should be demonstrated. So I pray that you will give evidence this week that you heard this sermon. You give evidence. <coughs> We don't just love we just we don't love with word and talk, but deed and truth. And we praise God tonight, don't we, that Jesus didn't love just with word and talk, but in deed and truth. He came and he demonstrated his love for us, giving us new life. I don't know where you're at in this room tonight with Jesus. I would assume some in this room have never put their faith in Jesus, embraced him as the Lord and Savior. Can you really turn your back on this Savior? Where else are you going to go? Consider the fact that Christ loves you. He does not love us because we're good. He loves us and makes us good. You're not going to get that anywhere else. That kind of love only comes from the cross. And that's the power of, of the gospel. And if you've never embraced the Savior, we pray you do. Father, we thank you for your love. So incredibly great. Can't explain it. And it'll take all eternity. And even then, we will still not be able to understand the depth of your love. We thank you for the cross tonight. Thank you for the Christ who even cried out on that cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Who cried out on the cross to a thief who made a royal mess of his whole life.
Today you will be with me in paradise. I pray that you would compel us by your love to demonstrate this type of, of mercy and grace and truth on our campuses, in our families, in our churches. May people know we are yours by how we love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.